Malay Hassan, also known as Malay the Nightingale and the Ogre of Fez, has quite an interesting story. By the time Malay had reached 47 years old, she had been running a fairly exclusive harem in one of her three homes in Fez, Morocco. For many years, the town had been full of whispers about this woman who was once beautiful, but now had a face and a heart as hard as the jewels she wore all over her body. There were whispers of murders and torture so fantastic that they eventually reached the ears of the ruling French class. This caused entertained smiles because skeptical ears believed no modern woman, especially one who was rich, privileged, and influential, could be such an evil person. They were mistaken. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and I've got a heck of a story for you today. I do have to warn you ahead of time that I record on a boat, so you'll likely hear water sounds and boat sounds in the background. I find them soothing, and I hope you do too. On another boat note, we did survive Hurricane Elsa. I posted on Facebook a picture of its location in comparison to us. It was pretty close by, but lucky for us, it was barely a hurricane, and we hope that that's the worst we have to deal with this season. Enough boat talk. Let's get on with the show. Today's case takes us to Morocco in northern Africa. The country is dizzying in its diversity. The movie Casablanca was filmed there and is named after its capital. For you foodies, couscous originated in this area between the 11th and 13th century. It looks like a grain, but it's more pasta-like and tastes amazing, hot or cold. Fez is one of the imperial cities of Morocco and has an ancient walled city, which many compare to Jerusalem. And that's where today's villainess lived the majority of her life. Moulay Hassan was born somewhere in Algeria. She may have been a runaway or the black sheep in a decent family, but a lot of her young history is unknown. At the height of her fame and power, she never claimed a relationship with anyone in terms of family and never cared to share who she really was. Through grit, determination, and wit, she built herself up from having nothing to being very influential and rich. This was not an easy task in the early 1900s in Morocco, where a single independent woman would have a heck of a hard time making a life for herself. Moulet, however, had perfected a tone and manner about herself which made it seem like she came from money. She learned to be quite a smooth talker and by all reports was able to read people's minds and intentions very well. At age 11, she was said to be pretty and precocious in every way. At her young age, she began to follow the French armies in Africa and would perform for them by dancing in order to make her money. By the age 21, she was an accomplished dancer and entertainer and was already an accomplished businesswoman in a big way for her country at the time. She was able to hire other girls to work for her. She taught them what to say and what to do to get men to pay them for dancing. She taught them the art of seduction. Maybe I'd have been a better bartender during the last two summers if I'd learned some of her techniques. Always looking for new opportunities, she and her group of girls followed a large column of soldiers deployed in Morocco. This proved to be very lucrative, and by the following year she was running the largest institution of her kind in the city of Fez. Not too long after, she met a wealthy captain who fell deeply in love with her. He offered to buy her out of her establishment if she would come to France with him. 
She finally consented for a really large sum of money. Her beauty, charm, and wit helped her quickly become a favorite in Paris, where she made many friends, especially in the military circle she ran in with her boyfriend. Moulet soon tired of the young captain and was happier moving from one admirer to another, collecting expensive presents and jewelry along the way. Although she loved the culture and people of France, she always kept an eye on the politics and goings-on in her home country. She especially followed the actions of the troops in Morocco. In 1911, the French overthrew the Sultan of Morocco and established control of the country. Moulet saw this as an opportunity to further herself, and she quickly returned to Fez, where she started a new dancing establishment. Although they were called dancers, there was more than dancing going on. Vertical and horizontal dancing, if you catch my drift. During her time in Paris, she had met many of the officers who now led the army in Morocco. She received special treatment and considerations from them, and in return she would provide a troop of dancing girls for the soldiers' amusement. She would divide her employees into three groups. The first group were natives and local girls, and were reserved for privates in the military. These girls would follow the various divisions on their marches, and would often go into the desert to dance at lonely outposts and garrisons. The second group were mostly white women. Some of them were educated and from excellent families, and most of them were victims of the still-flourishing white slave trade on the African coast. If you're thinking, what? White slaves? Then let me tell you more. There was a flourishing slave trade of many races. Some of these were Christian missionaries taken as slaves. The women were usually used as sex slaves, just like in today's human trafficking, and the men were used for hard labor or household servants. Some of these women had houses of their own and would entertain officers or officials stationed at permanent posts. The final class of women were the dancers, who were coached and trained not only to dance seductively, but also to play love songs on the gun brie, which is a mandolin that was said to stir the blood of those who would listen to it. These women lived in luxurious homes in Fez, to which only the wealthiest officers and politicians were invited. Moulet would hire cooks to concoct new dishes for the soldiers, meals that might remind them of home or taste a little bit more like the food they were used to back in France. She was always on the lookout for new talent to entertain her guests, and though she treated the girls who worked for her with a sort of savage cruelty and with an iron fist, she went out of her way to be kind and generous to most of the people who asked for her help. She did this to build a good reputation for herself within the town and to keep her house in good standing with the military authorities and the police. She was said to be a bit superstitious, and she would often go to a fortune teller. The story goes that one day she went to this fortune teller, and the person told her that once in every woman's life, pity takes the place of duty. She said, You have come to me more than once for help, and I'm going to give you a piece of advice. The French are your friends here in Fez tonight. Several officers will be hunted by a mob. It will be in your hands to save them, only under your roof with fine protection. Pity them. Forget your duty to your fellow countrymen, and you will never regret it. Moulet pondered over this piece of information for a little while, and eventually she went to a lieutenant that she knew and told him of her fears. The officer laughed at her concerns, but he also thought that they presented a good opportunity to give some of his fellow officers a break. He would let them enjoy themselves at Moulet's expense. 
the lieutenant accepted the invitation to spend the night under her roof and in the midst of her girls. At that time in Morocco, Fez was peaceful, and it was believed that rebels who fought against the French local establishment had been quashed. The lieutenant and his fellow officers at the garrison took advantage of the peace and set about to enjoy themselves and Moulet's hospitality. The peaceful atmosphere was a farce. Rebels were not resigned to their place, and they saw the opportunity to take the officers off their guard that night. That evening, as Moulet happily filled drinks for her friends, the garrison officers, and put her girls to work, an angry mob was gathering in the city streets, and they began searching for men in uniform. Someone told them that a large group of French officers were seen entering Moulet's house. It was located on the city wall. The rebels rushed to the home and began storming it. Her home was built like a citadel. I didn't know exactly what that meant, so I looked it up, and it says that a citadel is a fortified area of a town or city. It might be a castle or a fortress, but it's usually the strongest part of a community, and most citadels have a portion of the home that forms an, like an outer wall of a walled city. So I imagine it kind of like a gated community these days. There's an extra layer of protection for the people located within the walls. According to one of my sources, one of two things happened. The first of which is that when the rebels were trying to storm her house, Moulet told the officers to follow her, and she had a room hidden at the back of her house. When the first man finally forced the door open, he said to Moulet, We know you have some French officers in here. We've come for them. At this point, Moulet drew a gun from under her robe and shot him. Then she moved to the door, holding her arms across it, and said, pointing at one of the men, she said, You, Mohammed, your son lives now because of the remedies I gave him as he was dying, and you, Takar, whom I am saved from the executioner's axe, did I ever refuse you welcome in my house or bread from my cupboards? You, Salim, have you ever knocked at my door in vain when you were cold or hungry or thirsty? Tonight I would be a dog to let you interfere with my guests, whoever they may be, and you would be dogs to violate my hospitality. She then went on to say, If you are dogs, then enter, pass over my dead body, and murder my guests, and may the anger of the law be upon your head and on the heads of all your descendants forever. The story goes that the mob became quiet and ashamed and eventually went away. The second version, which is generally more believed, but also sounds pretty far-fetched to me, goes like this. The lieutenant and 15 other French officers, afraid for their lives from the angry mob, found themselves trapped in Millet's home and begged her to hide them. She believed it was impossible. She didn't think that she could hide them and that they'd break down her door and search the place and find the soldiers in no time at all. But after a few moments, her face changed and she said, No, wait. There is a way. If you do as I tell you and do it quickly. She took the officers into one of her back rooms and had them shave their mustaches and beards and made them take off all their clothes. She ordered the other girls to use their makeup to color the white European skin to the tawny color of the local women. The women then costumed the men, putting wigs on some of them and turbans on others. The women painted the soldiers' faces, penciled their eyebrows, and dressed them up as women. They finished by drenching them in perfume and covering them in jewelry. She dressed them in the most elaborate clothing that she could find in the home, some of which belonged to the real girls, which left them partially undressed. She then distributed the men on couches, mixing together with the real girls, 
She put the men towards the back, hidden partially by the dim light and the thick cigarette smoke. Near the front and nearer the light sat the half-dressed women. From the entrance, the scene looked like a sultan's harem. When the pounding came to the door, Malay took one last look, and she said in warning, "'Get your big feet out of sight.' She answered the door with a gun in her hand, and a half-dozen men pushed in, but they hesitated when they saw her, holding a gun pointed at them. They said to her, "'We want to search your place for the Frenchman,' but they were told quickly that there are no men in the house. The men insisted, saying that we're going in anyway." Moulet yelled, "'You're lying. If you're honest, you may search my house, but if it's only a pretext to molest my girls, I will shoot, through the heart, the first man that attempts to touch them. If you must look, look, but you must not touch.' The first men saw quite the alluring sight, and I'm sure their brains got a little bit scrambled. The charming girls that were closest to the men were all voluptuously feminine and barely wearing any clothes. The girls further back were more modestly dressed, but they were also so shy that many of them only peeked coyly at the rebels with one eye over the top of a pillow or a blanket. Moulet could see the desire on the rebels' faces, and she realized that the men were thinking, this is a time for pillaging and rioting. Why should these beautiful women be off limits? She read their thoughts, and her voice was caressing as she suggested that they come back tomorrow after it's all over, and they will be sure to be taken care of. That was all it took. The leaders made a search of the other rooms, but found nobody, and on their way out they paused once more to feast their eyes on the beautiful women. Just as they were turning to the door to leave, one of the men recognized one of the soldiers and started to yell, but Moulet shot him through the heart. The other five men turned around, their hands going to their weapons, but Moulet spoke sharply and with a deadly voice. I warned him I would do this. Who wants to die next? Her voice changed back to its caressing tone as she looked significantly at the leader. Can't you wait for tomorrow night? The rebel leader responded, yes, if you'll remember me. The other men cried out jealously, don't forget me and me and me, as they carried out their dead comrade. The story goes on to say that the next day, the surviving five rebel leaders were not disappointed because Moulet lived up to her reputation of the little liar who keeps her word. Not surprisingly, there were significantly less women at the party the next night, but they were not missed. The French officers were very grateful, and they presented Moulet with the bronze statue of herself, which no one recognized, but that was okay with Moulet. They also gave her money and a new nickname. She became the Queen of Fez, and her salon, as she liked to call it, was frequented regularly by men in uniform who explained to others that she had become a valuable intelligence department. Just over ten years later, she performed another service to the French military. She came across information about a plot by local rebels to massacre one of the garrisons during an annual festival. Typically during this festival, over a hundred thousand people would be in town, and the rebel group planned to incite this crowd and to join them in attacking the soldiers. Moulet gave the general enough time to place the main leaders of this rebel group under arrest, and the festival went off without bloodshed. It was estimated that she saved over a thousand lives that night with that piece of information. When word got back to France about what this woman with such a dishonorable profession did for the military men, the women of France and the wives of soldiers almost went into hysterics, especially when somebody proposed that Moulet get the Legion of Honor award. 
and for a while it looked like she would receive it. This was too much for the respectable women of France to put up with. Protests poured in. Wives of men who had in the past received the Legion of Honor Award said their husbands would throw it away if it was bestowed on Moulet. Moulet could build a castle out of all the bricks they threw at her. The ladies of France believed a woman with such a dishonorable professional, their words, not mine, should not receive such an award. Moulet herself was frustrated by the delay in receiving the award, announcing that if they didn't hurry up, when she received it, she would tie it to her mule's tail. It was these words that ended her chances of ever receiving the Legion of Honor. She pretended to scorn the award. Instead, she covered herself with a fortune of jewelry and clothes. But in truth, it broke her heart, because it permitted respectable women to scorn her. It was around this time in her life, as she felt spurned and her looks were fading, that she turned to hashish. For those of you who don't know, like I didn't, hashish is an extract from the cannabis plant, which has high concentrations of psychoactive resins. It has a long history of use in countries all over the world. It has a relaxation effect on some people and brings out violence or paranoia in others. Some believe that it's her use of hashish that may explain some of the terrible things I'm about to tell you about Moulet in her midlife. In 1933, she had reached 47 years old. Whispers were going around Fez about her. The native locals believed them, but they would never complain to the authorities because they were afraid that she wouldn't be punished and they would feel her vengeance. They were afraid because they had seen over and over the highest army officers and government officials bow to her as if she was loyalty. If there was any doubt of her influence, she would remind everyone in her circles that the French owed her a thousand lives and she had not yet collected all the debt. It was said that she would leave her huge fortune of jewelry laying around her home unguarded because no one would dare rob her. She believed she was above the law, but this delusion was shattered by the innocent hands of a couple young boys. Moulet had three homes at this time. She had her original home within the wall of the citadel, but she also had acquired a dance hall and a private home with a large garden in the back. It was in that enclosed garden that two small boys managed to squeeze. Once they were inside, they saw that near a fig tree there was a fairly large pile of fresh dirt. If you have little boys, you know how much they love dirt. These two started digging a hole in the softer dirt, and after a while, they wandered out into the street, carrying some weird white things that they had found. A few minutes later, a police inspector found them trying to fit the white things together, and he recognized them as bones of a human hand. Further investigation brought to light that these bones belonged to an almost complete skeleton of a young woman that was scattered in the earth under that fig tree. To the surprise of the locals, the police confronted Moulet at her home on the wall for questioning. Almost laughingly, Moulet denied knowledge of the bones and reminded them that they had better remember who they were talking to. While they were speaking, the inspector paused in the quiet and heard a faint scratching sound from behind a recently plastered wall. He asked Moulet, where's that sound coming from? And she responded saying it must be one of her cats. She had many. She said, I have here many, as you can see, and one of them must have been imprisoned last week when workmen repaired my wall. Let it out, the inspector ordered. And Moulet went on to say, I've already arranged for the plaster to come tomorrow. He will know how to make a small hole and not do too much damage. The inspector looked deeply into Moulet's face 
and saw nothing. Her face remained calm, and there was no indication that she was lying. But as he looked past her to one of her servants, he saw that the servant was trembling. Now in the several articles I read, some said this man was a servant, and others said it was her husband. I will go with servant, as my primary source claims. He yelled at the servant named Ali, asking him, What's behind the wall? Ali answered, but he seemed extremely nervous. He said, As Allah is my witness, it is only a cat. The inspector knew Ali was lying. He took his gun out and used the butt end of it and hit the wall three times. The wall sounded back at him with three hollow-sounding blows. The inspector jumped back and said, This is the police. Is anyone behind that wall? Answer in the name of the law. There was silence for a moment, and then from behind the wall came a meowing sound, and Moulet grinned like a Cheshire cat. She purred slyly. Satisfied now, Mr. Policeman? The inspector's face showed embarrassment as he flushed and thought maybe he had gone too far with this politically connected woman. But then he heard a muffled voice speaking through the wall. It quietly said, No, I will not keep quiet, and then louder, Help! Help! There are four of us here, and we are dying. As a little side note in my research, I found that in some cases there was a story of three girls and a boy, and in other cases there were four girls and a boy. I saw more references with four girls and a boy, so I'm going to go with that. The police went to work on the wall, and with the nearest tools they could find, they soon dragged out five children. They were almost naked, and there was hardly anything left of them, as they appeared skeletal and were more dead than alive. The space which they were pulled out of was so narrow, the captives had no room to even lay down. They had been stuck standing in the wall for four days. They asked for water, and Moulet ran to get them some, but they rejected her water, exclaiming that it might be full of poison. At this point, she seemed to hiss with rage, throwing the pitcher into the sink. The officers refilled it in front of the captives' faces. They drank thirstily. The police began to question them, wondering why they had meowed like a cat at first instead of calling for help. They replied that Moulet had told them she would let them live if they remained quiet, and if anyone heard them, they were to meow. She had told them that she would take them out and fillet them alive if they spoke. They repeated that they had been there for days without water or food, but they also knew whose bones the police were digging up from Moulet's garden. They revealed that it was their friend Sharifa, who was a dancer. When the five had recovered enough, they told a long sad story of how Moulet had enticed them into captivity. They had been a part of a band that played on the streets, singing and dancing for money. She had invited them to her home for all the food they could eat. This was something they had never had an opportunity to do before. She took them home and fed them, and when their bellies were full, they fell asleep in her home. The next day she dressed them in fine clothes after bathing them, and she began to teach them to dance. They felt a little uncomfortable with Moulet, but they also thought it was a safe place and they would be well fed and cared for. So after a few weeks of training, but receiving no money, they were happy to hear they would be allowed to perform and collect money. They followed the servant Ali through the streets, supposedly to a house of a wealthy merchant, but instead they were brought to the walled house. Once there, they were told they would be slaves, and death would be the punishment for any attempt they would make to escape. At first they didn't believe it, and turned to Sharifa, who was a beautiful young dancer. She looked at them with sad, sympathetic eyes. 
Sharifa proceeded to show them the scars on her back and told them that Mulay was above the law and all-powerful. There was nothing that they could do but submit to their fate or die. The girls were forced into being subservient to Mulay's paying guests, and the boy was kicked about and beaten as if he was a dog on the streets. If they ever protested, they would be lashed on their backs. They spoke of cruelties and brutalities which delighted the guests in the walled house. One of these was Moulet's own invention. She called it the hot tea dance. When a customer asked for this performance, the dancer would appear naked, balancing a tray on her head. On top of the tray were cups of boiling hot tea. The dancer had to keep the tea on her head while going through a series of acrobatic seductive movements, which, with great skill and very good luck, might be accomplished without spilling the tea. Sharifa, who had been dancing for quite some time and was very well practiced, could complete the dance without spilling the tea about one time out of every four. On the other times, when the tea would spill, Sharifa's skin would be scalded to the vicious delight of Moulet's disgusting customers. Sharifa was resigned to her fate and endured her suffering without complaint, but one night she broke. The guest of honor on this night was an old tribal chief who had been partaking in hashish with Moulet earlier in the night. The drug seemed to inspire cruelty in this man and in Moulet. After Sharifa had been scalded twice with hot tea, the man insisted on sticking needles into her back and then heating them with his newest toy, which was a cigar lighter. The needles would get red hot and burn the young girl's skin. He pushed her too far and suddenly Sharifa whirled around and punched him in his stomach. And then, as he started to buckle over, she kicked him under the chin and almost broke his neck. She hoped she had killed him. She then turned on Malay and screamed obscenities at her. The four girls and the boy tried to help Sharifa and hold the guests away from her as they all tried to escape. But between guests and servants, they were outnumbered. The mutinous five were all quickly bound and gagged. The evil chieftain was taken away, still unconscious, but Malay was furious. She immediately called for stonemasons, but while she was waiting for them to arrive, she beat the children almost to death, and then she had them walled up and were given the instructions to meow like a cat. Since they were gagged and bound, this felt like needless advice, but Moulet seemed to have experience in such things, and evidently foresaw the possibility that one of her victims might get loose and untie the others, which happened after a very short time. They were too scared to break out at first. Instead, they scratched a small hole in the soft mortar to make a peephole. It was through the small hole that they witnessed Sharifa being beaten to death, and then her flesh was cut off of her in small strips and was fed to Malay's many pampered cats. When for some reason they refused to eat the human flesh, they said that Malay spiced it up with various herbs, including catnip, and then the cats accepted the food. When this was over, she said they heard her giving orders to boil the bones and bury them in her garden. Soon it was the servant Ali's turn to be questioned. He was quick to reveal the fate of a dancer previous to Sharifa. The second dancer had lost her health and good looks under the abuse of Moulet and her guests, and she was no longer of interest to the paying patrons. She was old news. When this happened, Moulet told Ali to take her to another house. The girl agreed to go because she believed that nothing could be worse than what had been going on at the walled house. 
But just before they left, Mule handed Ali a little loaf of bread that was full of poison, strychnine to be precise, and whispered to him to take the train out of town, and at some random point he was to get off the train and take the girl for a stroll. Along the way, he was to offer her this loaf of bread, and then after she ate it, leave her. He followed the instructions and returned to the walled house alone. He said he left the dancer dying under a tree. When he was asked what he had been paid for murdering the dancer, Ali replied nothing at all, except she didn't kill me as she would have done if I had disobeyed. At this time, Ali was 46 years old and was really only held captive by fear. Once Malay was in prison, the grip she had on him was broken. The stories he told were believed and sealed her fate. He admitted to helping Mule kill Sharifa by putting a cord around her neck. He pulled one end and she pulled the other as they slowly garroted her. They completely removed her head that way. The testimony was confirmed by the five skeleton-like prisoners, three of whom died shortly after being released from captivity. Others came forward after hearing that Mule was in jail. Ali testified that it was the sadistic woman's pleasure to abduct attractive young girls and use them in staging fantastic, indescribable orgies for the entertainment of her depraved guests. If someone resisted, she would shackle them in small dungeons where they were whipped, tattooed with hot irons, and struck with whips across the soles of their feet. If they still remained defiant, they were killed, dismembered and smuggled out of the city for burial. It was believed that she had done this to nearly 100 girls. Of the 14 girls who had been performing in the club in 1930, three disappeared, four were dead, and seven had been tortured so badly that they will be invalids for the rest of their lives. It was said that when a girl entered Moulet's home, she was never seen again outside. Moulet was certainly a Jekyll Hyde character. It seemed that the government of French Morocco also suffered from a double personality when it handled her case. They quickly tried, convicted, and sentenced her to death for murder, but then someone else in the government seemed to take charge and did nothing but put her in a nice, safe cell until public opinion had cooled down. The evidence had been so overwhelmingly against her that her conviction was inevitable and her death sentence seemed equally so. But it was weeks later that the public learned she was only going to serve a 15-year sentence from which she may be paroled at any moment. It seemed like her friends in the government and the military were helping her once again. Perhaps she had been able to blackmail someone who was quite influential. Her servant was convicted to 10 years in jail for the murder of Sharifa. I am so frustrated by her sentence. I feel like she should have definitely got death and an ugly one at that. This episode was a difficult one to research. There were limited documents that I could find and the information in the articles didn't always match up. But when I started reading, I couldn't tear my eyes away from the words. At this point, with the number of cases I've studied, I shouldn't be surprised by good people, or seemingly good people, who end up being so bad. Husbands, wives, mothers, and fathers who one day decide they want something else or something more and will stop at nothing to satisfy themselves and their desires. I think this is one of the many reasons I'm fascinated by true crime. Thank you so much for being a Twisted Listener. I'd especially like to thank Steph, who says, I love this podcast. Not only is the material so interesting and, yes, disturbing, but the podcaster's voice is so calming. It's a perfect combo. 
Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for your five-star rating and review. Those really make a huge difference for us podcasters. It also helps immensely if you share the podcast with a friend. Word of mouth goes a really long way, and I appreciate your support. If you can support the podcast monetarily, there are links in the episode description that will take you to your choice of a monthly contribution at three different levels or at a one-time contribution. Thanks once again, and to all of you, I wish you fair winds and following seas.